School CEO Conversations is an Aptogee Media production. We like to have insightful conversations with education's most inspiring and thoughtful leaders. In this episode, Iterating Leadership, we talk with Dr. Bob Baldwin, Superintendent of Fairhaven Public School District in Massachusetts. Here are today's hosts, Michael and Brittany. Bob, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. We're really excited to have you on, and, and we're really excited to hear your story as well as Fairhaven's story. I'm excited to be here. I'm looking forward to this, and this will be fun. Well, just to go ahead and get started, could you share with our listeners how you actually got into education and how you actually got to Fairhaven in the first place? Sure. Um, Never once when I was 17 years old did I say, someday I want to be a superintendent of schools. I can tell you that. I, I wanted to be an athletic coach. And so as I was leaving high school, I chose the profession that was attached to coaching. Um, if, if it was accounting, if it was in business, that's the direction I would have headed towards. It happened to be education, which was a blessing and uh, a godsend. But um, I wanted to be an athletic coach and it was te- being a teacher coach. And I went to Springfield College and the rest kind of took care of itself. Birth of basketball, right? Yes, it is. Naismith, birth of basketball. You got it. Did you actually coach basketball too as well? I, I was a baseball um, player in college. I wasn't that great, but I was a middle relief pitcher and knew pretty well on that I wasn't about to make it anywhere far. So I knew, but I always, um, I was inspired to go to Springfield by my father and, and a, a basketball coach in Fairhaven named Wayne Wilson. He went to Springfield College. I was the ninth player on an eight-person team, believe me, in basketball. But he kind of inspired me to want to be a basketball coach. I ended up coaching all sports uh, but I ended up being a basketball coach for 12 seasons at Fairhaven High School and and loved it dearly. And how did you move from being a coach to actually getting into administration and becoming a superintendent? <laughs> I was in some pretty difficult meetings that took place with my student athletes and uh, hearings and everything else that took place over some behaviors that happened. And during those times, I witnessed um, my superiors who happened to be leaders above me, athletic directors, principals, et cetera. And I was able to make some tough decisions and they weren't. And I said to myself, oh my God, I need to do this or I want to do this because you know, if I'm gonna make a greater impact, I think I need to go to a different level. So uh, as crazy as it is, some of the circumstances that happened while I was coaching uh, triggered me to say, I need to go into administration and try and make a deeper difference. So. Has coaching like informed your understanding of the superintendency at all? Oh, it's, it's the same. I have said all along that as an educator, a teacher, coach, students were, were who I was trying to connect with. You're a teacher of students. And then um, I got into being a principal and I said, oh, now I'm a teacher of teachers. And now um, I tell people all the time, they say, do you miss coaching? And I said, no, 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 I'm still coaching. I'm just coaching adults who are now our principals and our, our leaders in our district to common goals that we need to accomplish. It's the same thing. And then I always jokingly say at the end that the students and the uh, children were much easier than the adults. Uh, but, but it truly <laughs> is. It is coaching and teaching just to different levels of people. Speaking of coaching, you said that you have had a lot of administrators at Fairhaven who you have kind of coached into um, other leadership positions throughout time. What does that feel like? And how have you been able to create a pipeline for administrators? I hope to, because, you know, 
Uh, there are two kinds of administrators. I'm one that says I need to hire people smarter and better than I am and uh, work with them and, and uh, work with their coattails. And there are other administrators who try and hoard, hoard talent or are intimidated by talent. And those are districts and places that fall apart. I learned a long time ago with others not to be selfish and hoard someone's talents and aspirations. So right from the get-go, I'm having conversations with um, our leaders to say, what do you want to be and do someday? And they're like, well, wait a minute, you just hired me. Why would you ask me that question? Well, I'm trying to build a relationship so I can help them get to whatever level they want to be at. And, and that may be the level they're at, and that's fine when we have that conversation in time. But it's, it's really important that we get the most out of our people by telling them that what do you want to be and do? And it's my job to get you there. You can't hoard people. You can't be selfish with their talents. And I think um, over time, it's really helped uh, move some people in, into a different level of leadership. I always say to them, if not you, who? I know this is hard work, but look around. And you know that many people have come up in leadership because of what they've seen has not worked. So you can do things that work. If not you, who would do this? And uh, they start to move in that direction. I imagine that that builds a lot of trust too. I hope so. Um, you know, the position and the title and, you know, this getting to having our, my own people, some of us that I work with coming back, I want it to be based on trust. I want it to be open and transparent. But the darn position and the title sometimes gets in the way. You know, <laughs> I'll have meetings with principals and I'll have them come to my office and I see them turn red or I see them get nervous. I'm like, what are you doing? Uh, you know, well, I'm in the superintendent's office. And I'm like, but I... You know, you look at yourself on the inside as this normal human being, but you have this darn title. I use the title of superintendency about four times a year when I need to. Uh, but for the most part, I need to be a leader of leaders that tries to get people to get the most out of themselves. And so it takes a while, but that's part of our vetting process as well to try and hire people who, who uh, do fit our same mindset. That, that's really interesting. And especially about the idea of only using that like four times a year. So do you even see yourself as more of like a coach instead of a superintendent? Oh, I, I say this all the time, trying to educate our principals. Um, I have a role and I have a self. And uh, my role, like I said, four or five times a year, I have to play superintendent and, and wear a certain color tie and sit behind the desk and, and do that. But um, I'm to myself, always myself. I, I had um, the president of the Mass Association of School Superintendents this year. And in my introductory uh, statements at the beginning, I said, I, I'm going to quote Joel Walsh. I'm an ordinary average guy. Uh, that's who I believe myself to be. But I also know that the role, and for all the right reasons, is that you are a superintendent of schools. And that is a huge, huge um, uh, responsibility to have. And I honor and I love that responsibility. But it's, it's difficult to, to turn between the two. And just, you know, it's also difficult on the personal side. Um, my wife and we've, we will have been married 37 years this August. So we're okay. And it's great. But she will say to me, you know, since you've taken on this job, you're really not the same person that you were. And that's an ouch. Uh, but she's right. Because in order to be the superintendent, I need to watch everything I do 24-7. If I go out uh, to a local establishment, I can't have three or four cocktails sitting in front of me. I have to always say and do the right thing. And sometimes um, that's tough and it's hard. So, but, but it's what you take on when you take on the responsibility. 
Yeah, that's actually one of the things that really surprised me about superintendents when I first started meeting with them is that, you know, I talked to a bunch of superintendents who, you know, they've talked about how, you know, they haven't been to a liquor store in their community in 20 years, or they haven't had a drink out in their community the entire time they live there. And it's just because they're concerned about those perceptions and what people might say or what people might think. So I was curious for you. I mean, did that like take its toll on you? Sure. Um, My mother taught me it takes a lifetime to build up your name and a second to ruin it. And uh, you've got to be on all the time. You have to be perfect all the time. Um, And and no one is. My God, Uh, I I make a thousand mistakes a day. But you're always cognizant of how will this look? How will this be? I can't comment on this. I can't sign that. I there are a lot of restrictions. And as I said, that's what you do when you sign up for this. That's okay. But um, if you're going to do it right, the thing is this, um, the people who want you to fail want, want you to give them something. I can never give them something. And the people who look up to you always want you to be someone they can look up to. So on both ends, you can't let people down. And I certainly, I remember a time when I was impressionable at 16, 17 years old. And at the time it was happening all the time. But I, I remember seeing a, a, a former football coach smoking a cigarette. And I'm like, wow, that's, but my dad was a smoker and it's no big deal, but I thought a little bit less. And I'm like, my God, that's terrible. And, and that's not, you know, but, but the example is you have to almost try and be perfect in your behaviors and everything you do and your comportment all the time, because some people look up to you like you are the superintendent as you are, and you need to walk that talk. Yeah. And I mean, that's so much pressure. Just speaking from a teacher's perspective, I felt a lot of pressure. I remember a time my first year as a teacher, I um, went to a restaurant and I got a cocktail and I was sitting like in a window and a group of my students walked by and with their parents. And I was like, oh, okay, that's how this is. Um, and, you know, a joke I make with my students all the time is I don't just plug myself into the corner at the end of the day. I'm still a person. Exactly. Um, and, you know, that pressure is only increased, I feel like, hundredfold for a very visible school leader like yourself. And maybe even more so because you've been in your district so long and are so visible. Yeah, um, I'm working in the district where I live. Uh, five children have graduated from our high school, five of our children, and it's kind of a unique situation. And the, the amazing thing about the people in the community is at Little League games when I've been there, at the soccer fields when I've been there, at the dances and concerts when I've been there, people are very respectful of it, though. I, I have to give them a lot of credit. Um, they're very respectful of it. And uh, but it is, you're always on you. You can't, somebody saw me once they said, Oh my God, I saw you at the grocery store with a baseball hat and I went the other way <laughs> or, um, you know, on, on a Saturday or Sunday, you got to always make sure that you're shaved because somebody say, boy, he's really letting himself go. Uh, so it, it, it's fine, but, um, it is part of the job and, and that's okay. I mean, we, you know, if we want to be professional and we want to be looked at in that way, then we have to walk the talk at all times. Yeah. And speaking of walking the talk, do you mind sharing the story about kind of what really pushed you to take that step from school leader to superintendent? The story, the very sweet story you told us about your wife. Yes, sure. So I think I told you that I got, I went from coaching to administration because of some stuff that happened while I was coaching. And in doing that, uh, that got me into the, the dark world of administration, you know. So now I'm an assistant principal and a principal, and I'm a principal in a community not in Fairhaven and, and probably grew more as a leader than I've ever 
grown in my life in, in the community of Middleborough. I had a great leadership team and it was a great community to learn from and a brand new team took over and we just, we learned so much at that point in time. And so you have the opportunity to have your uh, family possibly come to school in that district. And so what I did was my wife, and, and so this is like the corniest uh, story in the world, but my <laughs> wife, I tell people that um, she was a cheerleader at Fairhaven High School. Um, she didn't like me in high school. We were just friends, of course. You know, I was whatever. <laughs> but anyway, um, we are married, and uh, if she were to cut herself, because our colors are blue and white, I am telling you that the blood coming out of her veins would be blue because she just bleeds blue, as we say here. So um, we're at the dinner table and our daughter is entering high school and I'm a principal in Middleborough and we live in Fairhaven. And she says to me, I think maybe Aaron should go to Middleborough with you. I don't think the schools are good enough anymore in our town. And I almost fell over because this is someone who, believe me, bleeds blue. And um, at that time, the superintendency was opening in Fairhaven. And I always tell people on about the last day for all the corny and crazy reasons, I put my name in the hat to be the superintendent in Fairhaven. And it was truly, as people say, you know, make decisions as if it were your own children. It was to try and bring a district back or put a district where it should be to benefit the greater good. And so I truly applied for this job to try and make it better um, for our own. And when my wife hit me between the eyeballs by saying the district isn't good enough, it was a clear impetus to try and go and make my town, my school, my district better. So when you're bringing in leaders to the district, I mean, having them bring their own students, their own children into the district, is that like a priority? Do you encourage that? Or is it more of just kind of up to them and you let them make that decision? Or is that something you really push? So it's a great question. And I don't, you know, just like when I talk to our leaders about what do you want to be someday when there are leaders and they're looking at me like, what are you, you know, why are you talking to me like that? Uh, but the point is, we're trying to, it's a clean slate. What are you going to, what are you going to be and do with your life? And I want to help you. Um, we never say that, that you shall or you must. Uh, but we have in our teacher's contract that teachers can bring their children if they work here, but they live in another community, they can bring their children to be educated in our district. I've seen it as a barometer of how well we're doing. If you're gonna put your children in the district in which you work and bring them out of the district with which you live, that's a good sign for me. And we're to the point where it's a problem now. We're to the point where it could be affecting class sizes um, across the board. And so it, that's a really nice problem to have. But at the same time, um, it, it, instead of choosing to do it, we let it happen. And by letting it happen, uh, more and more people, uh, parents and teachers are choosing to come into our district and having their kids. And I'm thinking, what better sign of how you're doing is that where um, the adults place their children in the school setting? I mean, I think about for a parent right? If they know a teacher and that teacher is not sending their student to the school they serve in, I mean, that's probably gonna be a little bit of a red flag, right? <laughs> Absolutely. And it, it certainly would. And so believe me, I look at that. If all of a sudden I start to see people, we have other gauges as well. We have a sending um, K to eight school that can choose three high schools. And one of them is ours. And it went from under a hundred total at the high school level and now we're um, about 260 at the high school level. So that has gone up immeasurably 
So that's another barometer. Another one is we have a uh, vocational school that our children can go to. And, and a decade ago, there were about 260 going there, and now it's 155. So less are leaving, more are coming. They're clear indicators that something's right. And believe me, the phone calls I get, I would never have that indication. <laughs> I mean, no one's ever calling saying, thank you so much for the job that you do, or boy, I really agree with that decision you made. 98% um, of the calls that come in are really not always um, complimentary, okay. so they really humble us. But when people choose to send their children to your schools and district, that's a clear indication of how well you're doing. So I wanted to know when you're working with potential leaders and you have them in this pipeline, is this something that is like informal and it's just kind of based around maybe like conversations or is this something where there is like a formal program that people are working through? I was really just curious on the specifics of that for the district. Everything we do is iterative. Um, everything we do is to try and make it better. And, and the reason it's iterative is because a lot of what you do fails. And so how do you grow future leaders? How do you entice someone who can make just as much money by coaching or working an advisory at a top step and work, um, you know, on a per diem rate, probably make less money, uh, more aggravation. How do you get them into the world of leadership? And if we don't, we're going to have a crisis. And, and I'm really concerned about it uh, right now about the pool that, that exists in leadership. So what we're trying to do this year is we're trying to have lead teachers across the board. These are teachers who we will pay them a stipend in some cases, we'll give them one period off. But the idea is we want them in the room to learn the mindsets of leadership and see th they can be a bridge between teachers and administration so that teachers can understand why administration do what they do and administrators can um, get greater feedback and have that avenue of communication. So we're trying to do that. We're a small district, so we're not flush with all kinds of coaches and coordinators. So we're, we're paying teachers a literacy K to two person, a three to six mathematics, uh, then core content areas across the board, and then teaching and learning coaches. We've taken every different silo that we have in the district or content area and had are going to have representation. And then the goal is to have professional development in which our principals, our vice principals, and these teachers all go to. And so they all learn together in this professional development. And the, the professional development will not be content area stuff. It'll be mindset and, and leadership and, and uh, those kinds of issues in which maybe we can start pulling pools of people to be the next whomever. Um, so that's the whole idea. I always say this, I'm, I'm really into Jim Collins and good to great. And he talks a lot about buses. And so get the right people on the bus, the wrong people off the bus. And when things happen, it's first who, then what? And I'm a real, you know, I'm always saying if something happens where I get hit by a bus, this place better run for the next decade. Uh, we better have people, you know, in line to do this, that and the next thing. So you're trying to have and I will tell our principals to do the same. Who's the next VP and the VP and, and, and the people in central administration? Who's the next principal? So we're constantly trying to identify and, and just to end it. There are many times we don't. And so in doing that. You do have to bring people in from the outside, and we try and put them through a pretty grueling process to get them in as well. So when you're talking about building leaders, and this isn't just talking about administrators, right? It seems like it seems like you're talking about teachers, and it sounds like when you're viewing leadership, you're not just viewing leadership as people who are maybe in central office, but something that 
happens really across the entire district. Absolutely. Teacher leaders, that, that's where the rubber hits the roads. You know, somebody calls me and, and says, I need you to fix this issue that's going on in a school. And I, I'm like, I'm the superintendent. I'm in charge of everything. And yet I can do nothing to help you. What I can do is get you in touch with that teacher who knows on a day-to-day -day basis what's going on and, and it'll all get fixed. And it always does. So our teacher leaders are the ones who can communicate and listen to what's going on. And then they can be the conduit that talks to building leadership so that you don't need some micromanaging superintendent. What you need to have is your buildings run their own way by their own people so that um, people don't have the baggage of having uh, somebody like me calling them up every day saying, why didn't you do this? Or why are you doing that? They need to create their own, as I say, blank slate uh, and their own vision. Uh, again, under the guise of what we're doing as a district, but uh, that's that's what I believe in. Yeah, absolutely. And again, I think that that builds trust um, between teachers and administration. I mean, when you trust people to do their job, you know, it leads to a, a feeling of respect. And talking a little bit about teachers, I know that you're aware that there is a national teacher shortage. Do you think that programs like your teacher leadership program are one way to impact that in your own district? I think we need to take our teacher leadership program and now kick it down into, and I saw this, um, I was on a New England Association of Schools and Colleges accreditation visit in New Haven, Connecticut, mm -hmm. and they were working with colleges and universities around New Haven and having um, student interns who were entering the field of education um, in those colleges and universities serve as substitutes and interns in the schools already as students. It needs to get deeper almost deeper to seventh and eighth grade. You know, we're constantly talking about career counseling and, and um, college and career readiness. We should be promoting our own profession. We're, all, we're, we're never really saying, come on, be a teacher. And, and our teachers are our greatest models to do so. So I just think it needs to get even deeper because if, if again, I, I make that claim to our administrators, if not you, who? If you go to our students and say, who are going to be the next educators who have an influence, not just on the core content area, but on the human beings and the greater good of society, you can make a difference. And I think we uh, in our own profession need to do a better job of promoting our own profession. Absolutely. And I think that that could lead to a, a lot broader experience um, of teachers if you pull from those classrooms. I mean, as a teacher myself, like what a great scouting opportunity like, yes. to find, <laughs> you know, to find good teachers. And I'm not just talking about my kids who are like A plus all the time. I'm talking about my kids who are collaborative and can think outside the box whenever they're trying to break something down for another student. Those kids who just have a natural charisma that can honestly take you far as a teacher. Um, and I don't, I think you're right. I don't think we do enough to like pull those kids aside and be like, hey, you have a gift and that gift could be hugely impactful. You know, the other group is we don't have to all, oh, you look like a teacher or you play school in your free time or no, resilience we found is built on an adult who's made a difference with a child who's had a very difficult situation or something happened to them in their lives. Mm -hmm. What better group of individuals than to go to individuals who have had it difficult, who have made mistakes. You know, a mistake at 12 or 13 years old means absolutely nothing. It, it, your, your life should be able to move forward and you should be able to be and do anything you want to do. There's a population of people right there that education made a difference to 
that we, oh, you aren't the teacher type. Of course, any human being that wants to make a difference to the greater good of society and impact young people should get into education. And it should be a profession that we come together. And, and you know, even nationally, um, you know, we can claim this, that, or the other about how we pay or how we look towards our educators, but, but we need to make it something that's really esteemed and important. And, and um, it, it's just a, a systemic issue that if we just take it for granted, we're going to have problems. Yeah. And you talked about that esteem and like needing to view teachers as professionals. I mean, I think about for the student, right? If they're constantly seeing their teacher not be viewed as professional, not be treated as a professional, how is that going to inform their understanding of the teacher and frankly, their respect for the teacher? Oh, it's no different than my beginning about having to be the superintendent and the role in the self. You are in a profession and you uh, exude professionalism. And when you do that, young, impressionable people look up to that. And you're absolutely right. The, the same responsibility you take on to be a superintendent and that darn title that I talked about is no different than taking on the amazing title of teacher. And being a teacher means I'm a professional and I exude that in everything I do and I never give one indication whatsoever. Um, I'm always on and I might have had a bad day or I might have had a bad period uh, before. I'm always on because those young impressionable minds are waiting to, to hear from me. And, and so it's the same throughout uh, that exuding professionalism across the board in our profession. And it's fascinating for me because I look at, you know, professions in the United States and I don't think there's another profession that pretty much every single person, every citizen, not only experiences, but experiences firsthand for an extremely long period of their time. And so really it should be the profession where there is the biggest opportunity to promote it and to promote it to people that can get into it really from the time that they even enter the school district. I wanted to be an athletic coach because I was brought up in a family that, you know, was around sports a lot. And I had mentors and people that I looked up to in education that I said, wow, I want to be like that. Um, this gets to also the, the issue of race, ethnicity, color that we need to get. We need to have a 20 year plan, not a two month plan. The 20 year plan is we need to entice all children to say, I want to make a difference in society and in the greater good, and I'm going to enter the teaching profession. And they just can't be the student that, that acts and looks like the teacher. And so how do we get all students excited about this profession? You know, I keep hearkening back to the coaching stuff. If I knew that there was a good middle school basketball player, I made darn sure that I did everything I could to get them to go to our <laughs> high school. And if we know that there's a whole cadre of great uh, young minds out there that are in seventh, eighth, 10th, 12th grade, we need to start recruiting now to say, you can make a difference in the greater good of society. We're talking about that right now in the world we live in, in social justice. Come on, become an educator and make that difference. So I was curious on that equity piece because, you know, I think about it for myself, right? I was quote unquote good at school. I got straight A's. Both my parents were high school math teachers. I mean, I would be the poster child of the student that would typically go into education, right? But when we're thinking about the inequities in education, it seems like maybe part of the problem is the fact that the people that have always been really good at the system or always have benefited from the system are the ones that kind of go into education, go into the system and keep perpetuating it. And so I was just curious on your end, I mean, how much do you see about 
addressing that issue of equity does come down to making sure that we're not just keeping people that have been good at education, have been quote unquote good at school as the ones that are keeping going into education. Many, many years in my opening speeches, um, if you want to say something that makes the, the hair on the back of my neck go up, I, it's the term those kids. And, you know, it, it always comes up whether it's in uh, verbal or not. Um, but there are many times when, well, you know, we, we need to have different levels because I don't want my kids with those kids. And I used to always say, um, I have five children. There's a really good chance that three out of five of them are one of those kids. And what do you have to say about those kids? Because they all deserve the same opportunity. What, please define for me, what are those kids? And when I talked about resiliency and, you know, I, I love that uh, our mission statement talks about ambition, integrity, and perseverance. Perseverance and dealing through mistakes and adversity, there are your greatest leaders. There are your greatest potential educators. And so we're missing the opportunity when we're finding the perfect teacher who's in, uh, you know, a junior in, in high school who looks and acts like us. We need to solicit uh, all kids, those kids, every kind of kid who wants to make a difference and tell them they can be and do something that, that has an impact on the greater good. And so I totally agree with that is there's an entire population of every darn child in our country that sits in our schools. Why can't we impact them now? Again, this is not a two-month plan. This is a 20-year plan that when they're 18 and they come back at 38, now look where they are. But that's how you flip the script, not in two months, but in, in 20 years. So how do you go identifying those students? Like, what traits are you looking for? I, so I'm going to sound like the worst parent in the world, and I don't mean this like real bad stuff, but... I used to say to my wife, and it wasn't always endearing, um, we really have a great relationship. We really do. But I, you know, some of the conversation, but the, the thing I would say is I really almost wish or hope for adversity for our children. <laughs> and um, something would happen in their lives that wasn't over the top bad, but wasn't great. And I'd sit back and say, okay, good. Um, let's watch how this works. Let's watch how this happens. Because we're not defined by, it's easy every day to wake up and have a win and have a victory and have success and have a good day. How do we react when something doesn't go right? And as a vice principal, I learned so much about every darn day is a clean slate. You may have done something the previous day that was out of your mind and out of control. It's not personal. The, new, the next day you have a clean slate, you have a fresh start. That wasn't always the case in training some of the teachers that I worked with when I was an assistant principal. They would know that, John. oh, Johnny Jones is in my room, and oh, you're here today. Well, what message does that send to a kid when that's the statement that's made? It's a, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy that says, you want me to be unruly? Watch me. So I think in identifying, we need to just be, every day is a clean slate. Nothing is personal, and uh, it's based on behaviors, and it's my job as an educator I'm not in the court system. I'm not in uh, law enforcement. I'm in education in which I'm supposed to every day make it better for you, teach you, change your behaviors. And I can't change your behaviors if I have a prejudgment on who I think you already are. So if, if there's one thing, and, and again, that's not about content, but if there's one thing we can do, it's to come in every darn day with a clean slate that you're going to have a great day and you might have two bad ones, but I'm there for you. I'm not giving up on you. I will always be there 
in thick and thin. And those are the teachers that our kids love because they know they love them back. Yeah. And I mean, what an opportunity for growth. I don't remember who said it, but it, the idea of failing fast and often is something that, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that I, you know, not only take to my students, but also think about myself when I'm doing something new. Um, I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to give this a shot. If I fail, that's okay. I'll learn. And what an important lesson for students who, and for children and people who already think that like things are decided for them. Like what greater message of hope than like today's a clean slate. Yeah. Um, and that's something, you know, in the classroom that can't be overstated. And, you know, just also in thinking about like who our kids could be um, and who they want to be. Like, you know, there's nothing that's predetermined. Like you decide that with every decision every single day. I used to teach middle school health and it was kind of a, you know, life skills kind of thing. And um, I used to tell the students, I think we were on child number three at the time. And, and I would say, look, I cannot, okay, I have a mortgage. I have a responsibility. I cannot be and do anything I want to do right now in my life. You can. Don't you dare let anyone tell you what you can't be. The only one stopping you is you. And again, these are seventh and eighth graders, but they're trying to make choices of whether to go to the comprehensive school or the vocational school and what do they want to be and who, you know, I don't know what I want to be when I grow up. I mean, how does somebody at 17 or, or, or 15 years old know what they want to do or be? But at the same time, I would tell them you could, you know, uh, grow your hair really long and, and get on a Harley and drive from Massachusetts to California for the summer. Do it. I can't. So you have freedom and independence to be and do whatever you choose to be and do in your life. Go for it. And most people come back and, and want to do what's right and what's best for them. But I, I just don't think we should shut off. I, I say this, you know, with one of our children, I used to always say to my wife, Let's make sure we prolong their innocence. Mm -hmm. Let's make sure that we don't destroy somebody because we as an adult have said something to somebody that all of a sudden makes them doubt who they think they may be. So prolong their innocence. And once you prolong their innocence, they start to say, wow, I, I beat that or I overcame that. And now they're who they can be. But quite often adults um, and, and other kids will uh, destroy the innocence of a young person. So some of the things you're saying really remind me of a conversation that we had earlier in the podcast with uh, Dr. Teresa Hill. And she talked about this idea of ending failure as default, right? And it kind of sounds a lot like that idea of those kids, right? This idea that some students just aren't going to be as successful. They just, they just can't do as well. And so it seems like you really tried to focus on getting rid of that mentality. So how did you go about or how do you go about rooting that idea out of the district? <laughs> It's very complicated. And for the most part, it's hiring um, great educators who have a mindset of a growth mindset. And so that has helped flip the script in the culture of our district. We are blessed with many, many, many educators who believe in the growth mindset. And yet uh, there is not, I will tell people when we hire them, I meet with everyone and there's not a hallway you can go down in a school in America that you won't hear negativity and cynicism or that kid, or it's just, part of the nature, which, you know, it, it, the goal in utopia is 100%, 100% of a growth mindset. And we believe that all can do this. So you, you have to implement programming, stay on the programming. Uh, I, I love the word with fidelity and say, no, we're not deviating from this. There's some really good resources and literature out there about work avoidance and 
You know, I've heard people say, well, if I just outlast you, the next person will come on. And I've been here 16 years now and uh, I haven't been, we're still going to do this. So we've started a literacy program that had a lot of resistance. And um, it was, it was this, it epitomized this. It was literally about, you know, well, this child can't read and this is a slow reader and this is a, well, they're in kindergarten and first grade. And what we're starting to do is, is level them based on what they actually can do, not by what we believe. And our educators are like killing it. They're doing amazing work. So sometimes by putting a program in front, believe me, there were some and still a few that want to make sure that it doesn't get implemented. And the message from the top is it's not going anywhere. So this is the way we're going to do things. And now the majority are saying, my God, this is great for kids. The reading levels are up. It's just really been successful. But, you know, I think, so you talk about kids and perseverance. That's the leadership piece. If you listen to the noise and what's most comfortable, you'll implement nothing. You have to stick to what you believe is right and make sure that you have patience with it and make sure that it lasts and in time it will work. I, I don't know how many initiatives I've seen that in the first one to 18 months, should have been scrapped because it wasn't popular, wasn't good. But if you just give it time, it'll work. So, so that's part of the leadership side is just having patience and persistence and perseverance again to keep going with something. And people will jump on board and join along. So it's, it's worked through time, but every day is a new one, you know, a new hurdle. What we're seeing now with, with everything that's happened is uh, mathematics is really taking a hit with, with uh, the break in the pandemic that we've had. And so now we're really going to have to go with a vengeance towards that. So it's never ending. Well, I know you mentioned this before about like these ideas being iterative. And I really like that because it does point out that you're going to have failure in this process, but it's not about just accepting the failure, scrapping the idea and moving on. It's about seeing what worked, what did have an impact and adjusting it, making sure that you're using that failure as a, as a lesson and really having that growth mindset. Absolutely. It's, it's, if you take a, a research based program that you know is going to work with all the right supports, that's the other thing is we can't, I said this when I took over the district, no offense because they just won the Super Bowl, But when I took over the district, I used to say it was the 1976 Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And now, you know, whatever it's, it wouldn't be a bad thing. Um, and in doing so, what we had was everybody could point, you know, the finger pointing in two different directions. It could be, you know, the administration could point to the teachers and the teachers could point to the administration and the, and the central administration could point to the school committee and the school committee. could. No one took ownership. And so one of the first things I wanted to do is say, when you speak with one, you speak with all. And it took a while, but we could not show any cracks in what we believed in. So if you spoke to a school committee member the message was kind of more or less the same that is if you spoke to central administration, that was kind of more or less the same that when you spoke to a principal. So the idea of I'll find a crack to avoid doing this was eliminated. So no, this is the way we're going to do things here. So that was one way to, to try and make sure that whatever you're trying to implement can be implemented. And, and again, the mistake piece, there are so many things that we've scrapped because, oh my God, that, that just wasn't right. Or Time has changed. You know, 16 years ago, I, I had a different car than I have today. I shouldn't be driving the same car doing the same thing that I've, I've been doing 16 years ago. That would be wrong of me. So I just always every year, 
That's the exciting part. Every year, you want to make it a little bit better. And that means scrapping some things, improving other things, and sticking with those that you need to stick with. Well, it sounds like getting rid of that mentality of, well, this is the way we've always done it, so this is the way we have to do it, right? Oh, that, that, that mentality to me, again, those kids, and that's the way we've always done things around here. Well, that's not how we do things here. So love you to death, but uh, love to have you on board, but please do it the way we... And again, believe me, we're trying to have this come from our teachers. Um, we have a lot of committees, like I said, with this teacher leader piece that it was kind of delayed this year, but um, we just did a huge posting yesterday for all these lead teacher positions. And we're really excited to have a lot of educators sitting at the table determining what's next. So I did want to know, uh, kind of going back to some of the struggles with being like a superintendent, right? Especially having all these eyes on you and always having to be on all the time. When you are working with people who, especially who do want to move up to administration, for example, how do you go about helping them understand that, you know, one, like you're going to have all these eyes on you, right? And that, frankly, I mean, it's going to suck sometimes, but how do you go about working with them to, one, obviously accept that and embrace it, but also make sure that they're not really losing who they are in that process? So again, I just remember the quote, but anyway, how I work with them on uh, developing that is I try and tell them how hard it is. Uh, I confront them with the brutal facts. And the brutal facts are, and I'll get a little, um, I think I want to do this at the end of our, at the end of my tenure as president of the Mass Association of School Superintendents this year. Um, I hearken back to, I, I, I do a two-parter and I do it at least once a year with them because learning is repetition. From the movie Miracle, there's a scene in which, you know, you have to watch the whole movie to build up to it. And there's a scene where Herb Brooks, the coach at the end, and, and again, I show my age, I get goosebumps and I still to this day, when I hear Al Michaels say, do you believe in miracles? Yes, that was when I was growing up and I to this day get this great feeling when I hear that. And if, in the end of the movie Miracle, there's a scene where Herb Brooks, the, the Americans beat the Russians and they shouldn't have and, and that'll never happen again. And he looks up and he tries to find and look for his wife. And he kind of sheepishly waves at her because he doesn't know what to do. And everybody's celebrating on the ice. But um, I will I then see him go down a hallway and he goes down this dark hallway in the back of an arena and he uh, kneels down, puts his uh, head in his hands, just pumps his fist once and kneels down and starts to cry and then gets up and it's over. And I couple that with um, a quote from Dr. Lorraine Monroe that the life of a leader is lonely. And at least once a year with our leadership team, I remind them how hard it is what they do and that what they do isn't easy. Not everyone can do it. No one knows what you do. I have that wonderful wife that I talk about. There is no way I can go home and tell her what I do every day. There's just no context for anyone to understand what you deal with on a daily basis. And so it really is lonely. And as long as you acknowledge that and tell them that's what they're getting into, I also have dear relationships and colleagues of people who have tried to move up the ladder and they've said, no, thank you. Um, I'm going to stay in the assistant role. I'm going to stay here because I love the ability to say, and you may choose to appeal to the principal or superintendent if you wish. And that's cool. Everybody has to find their happy place. But, it, but I also then go back and challenge my people and say, but if not you, who? You are a bold leader and you need to keep it moving. 
and keep it down the line because the, this country and our profession are void of good, strong, bold leaders. And we need to build them and grow them. And when we identify them, we need to make sure that they stay in the profession. So I try to be brutally honest, confront the facts with them, and at the same time, then be there for them as best I can. What I do really love is that you're really focused on this idea that you know, it doesn't matter where in the district you are, you can still be a leader, right? Whether that is in the classroom or that is in central office, it doesn't have to be one or the other, right? Wherever your passion is, that's actually where you can lead as well. Correct. And Bob Baldwin, the superintendent of Fairhaven, does not have as great of an impact on everyday children as that teacher does. And if that's where you choose to have your impact for the greater good, for the long term for society, then stay there and do it. Because how many kids come back to those teachers and say, you made a difference in my life 10 or 20, 30 years later. That is amazing, too. So it's usually not the superintendent they're going to. No, they're not. I, I always uh, I learned this somewhere that uh, in my speech for graduation, what I'll do is I'll say, OK, how many people remember this? How many, how many people remember uh, the speech their superintendent gave and nobody raises their hand? And I said, okay, thank you. Have a nice day. Because I, I'm, there's no reason to even talk. Nobody remembers the superintendent or what they say that day. And that's why we need to make ourselves not that important and put the highlight on our educators and on our principals and on our buildings for our kids. Absolutely. And just to wrap up, um, what are you most proud of in your tenure as superintendent? Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> I could tell you some, you know, catchy things like the next accomplishment, whatever that is. I could tell you that it's brick and mortar. We have put into state-of-the-art model elementary schools um, in my tenure that are making a difference with kids. Um, they have great teachers with great class sizes in these amazing facilities. You know, there were feelings when those passed with votes or were built that were pretty prideful. But we're in a people profession. And I think it harkens back to what we've been talking about. It's those kids, it's those resilient children who may have had adversity, which through the years, because I've been around long enough now, I have had to say no, sometimes in very firm ways to young people. And it broke my heart and my role and myself. I didn't like myself very much, but my role was that discipline is love. And I'm going to teach you something now. And the most fulfilling things are those adults coming back, simply beeping a horn and waving, or simply saying, thank you, or simply saying, I get what you did. And it meant a lot to me. And th that's what's so hard about this profession is it's not right away. It's not instant gratification, but I will make those decisions a hundred percent of the time again because I tried to make those decisions to benefit that child for the long term for their good. And when they come back and say, thank you, or I get it, or I'm doing something today be or change my life around because, and that, that's probably something that every educator in this great profession can say, but when it happens, it's kind of special. Well, Bob, thanks so much for coming on today. And before we hopped off, just real quick, I mean, was there anything that you wanted to share with other superintendents that are out there across the country? No, just we need great leaders. Get into this and stay in this and 
and, and keep leading. One thing I've learned, it's funny when you get older, age is nothing anymore, but you need purpose and meaning in your lives. And, and we all do that. And purpose and meaning, there's no greater cause right now in, in all of society than to have people step up and lead the right way. And I don't necessarily know what the right way is. It's just trying to be a good person and modeling that for people. There's not enough of that. And it's not about, you know, like I said, the Facebook facts, it's about just genuine person-to-person relationships. All of these superintendents can make a difference. We're looked up to, whether we believe it or not, and we can make a difference. And we need to endure that and persevere that as hard as it is right now. We need to keep doing this. Thank you so much, Bob. I really do appreciate it. I told you I'd have fun, and this has been, uh, you don't even know how much time goes by when you're having fun, so this has been a lot of fun. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this School CEO Conversation. You can follow Dr. Baldwin and Fairhaven Public Schools on Twitter at Fairhaven underscore PS. Subscribe to School CEO at schoolceo.com for more advice, stories, and strategies for leading your schools. School CEO is brought to you by Aptigee.